Romans 12, we'll begin reading at verse 9, and this morning we'll just read through verse 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word, which reveals to us the will of God for our salvation. It gives us instruction for faith and life, and we pray now that your Holy Spirit would bless the reading and preaching of it. For your glory, we pray and ask in the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus Christ in John's gospel, chapter 13 and verse 35, has said this, by this... All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the early apostolic church did manifest this love. Luke records this for us in his book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, in verses 46 through 47, he summarizes the life of the early apostolic church when he writes this. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so the early church had that testimony. They were in favor with the people around them in that society. And if we were to fast forward after that into the third century, it was the historian, the church apologist, uh, Tertullian, who noted this. He said that when the Christians in his day would walk down the street, some of the unbelievers would look at them and say this, see how they love one another? And so there was this testimony, even after the apostolic church of the Christians' love for one another. And even though persecution comes and goes, and even though the love of some will grow cold, uh, this is what the world needs to see. And here in coming, uh, the world that is around us needs to see that we have a genuine, divine love for one another. You see, because the lost... They know that something is wrong with this world. And whether it's the arts or whatever form it might manifest itself in, we can see that unbelievers do know that there is true love. I like music. And so if I were to survey, which I have, some of Billboard's top 40 songs over the years, well, here's a few of them. Baby Love. You've lost that loving feeling, the power of love. How deep is your love? Endless love. 
And of course, all you need is love. And of course, if we were to look at the lyrics to those songs, we would find that they fall short of the glory of God. Most of them are about romantic, sappy, sentimental, erotic love, and they miss the mark. And yet you see what people often are looking for. Well, in our text, in Romans 12, beginning at verse 9 there, we find uh, the apostles' ingredients to Christian love. There is the love chapter, that other chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, where the same apostle, Paul, uh, tells us what love is. Love is patient and kind, and he goes through that catalog of divine love that we are to show to others. But here, he also says what love is, how we are to love as Christians, and so he says it in a different way. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And the question is, what does Christian love look like? As we've already seen in Paul's letter to the Romans, the Christians there, the first 11 chapters primarily are about doctrine. They're about his exposition of the Christian gospel, what Jesus Christ has done. And so in chapter 12, he begins by saying, live this way in light of God's mercy. Offer yourselves, your own bodies, a living sacrifice. And so how do we live sacrificially? By applying the divine love in our lives. And so that's what he begins to talk about here in chapter 12 and verse 9. And so the sermon this morning is going to be a little different because uh, you can't really divide this nicely into a sermon outline. So we're going to walk through it, and uh, there's probably 13 or so of these ingredients, and I think this morning we'll get through maybe seven or something like that. We'll see. And so what must Christian love be? Well, first of all, it must be sincere. That's what he says there in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. And so it must be sincere. We must not be hypocritical when it comes to exercising Christian love. Love. That word love there in the original under the English is that Greek word agape. You probably have heard of that. It's divine love. It's God's love that he even shows towards his own people. It's not an erotic love. It's not eros. It's not even brotherly love. It's this divine love of God. And so when we think about God's love, when we study God's love in Scripture, we find among other things that it is... um, Well, it's unmerited. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God told Israel there, he said, The Lord did not choose you or love you because you were greater than all the other nations. In fact, you were the least of all the other nations. And in 1 John 4 and verse 19, it says that we Christians love God. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. The only reason we love God is because he first set his love on us us. And it is a gracious love. In John 3, 16, it says, therefore, God so loved the world, the unlovable world, that world which was in rebellion against God. God so loved it that he sent his only begotten son so that whoever should believe in him shall not die or perish, but have everlasting life. And so even in 1 John 4, 8, we are told that God is what? love. And so this God, this gracious God who exercises his love upon his people, the love that we've received through him, from him, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to exercise and show towards others. 
That's what we are called to do here. And so we begin, and uh, as it says there in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. It is to be genuine, as we've said. And what does it mean uh, to be without hypocrisy? Well, it means don't be a hypocrite. You can fake it till you make it perhaps in other areas of life, but not in this one. You can only fake it for so long. It will become manifest if you do not love someone else. And it is hard to, uh, it's impossible, I should say, to uh, fake this love. And so he says, without hypocrisy, remember in the days of the New Testament, the Greeks, they had plays, they had comedies and so forth. They had drama and the actors would often wear a mask representing whether or not they were sad or happy. And the word hypocrite means actor, and it refers to that. And when even Christ in Matthew 23 rebukes the Pharisees, he calls them what? Hypocrites. And here we are told, let love be without hypocrisy. Let it be without a mask. As one has said, um, we are not to play a role. In the words of James Boyce, he says, In other words, we are to get off the stage and drop our masks. The old pastor and theologian and commentator on the scriptures, John Calvin, he says it is difficult to express how ingenuous almost all men are counterfeiting in a love which they do not possess. In the early 20th century, Arthur Pink was a little more blunt it's pollen season, so you'll, you'll have to excuse me this morning. <coughs> excuse me. Arthur Pink put it like this. There are many today who talk about the love of God who are total strangers to the God of love. And that's because we come into this world sinners in rebellion against God, right? And yet, when a person is born again, a person is converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to him... They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and love is a fruit of that indwelling. Galatians 5.21 says the fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love and joy and peace and patience and all of those things. And so as we even see here, Christian love is an outworking of our faith. And so the point I'm making then is it is a divine love. It is to be without hypocrisy. The only way you can possess it is to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that means that you have been born again by the Spirit of our God. So it's to be genuine. We're not to fake it. It is to be an overflow of the Christian heart. Second, we find here that it is to be discerning. Christian love is discerning. This may surprise some, maybe some who haven't uh, read a lot in the Bible and so forth, but Notice what he says, verse 9, abhor what is evil, hate it, loathe it, abhor what is evil. Now, when Paul writes this, he he uses all these participles, those words that end in I-N-G. And so, in verse 9, it should say something like this. Here's how it goes in the original. Let love be. Love must be without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. That's the sense there. 
And so, in other words, for our love to be without hypocrisy, we must abhor what is evil and to cling to what is good. And so here, as one has put it, real love, divine love, does not love everything. You know, I remember when I was a kid, back in the 70s, we had these things called tape recorders, and they were very small. And uh, my great aunt would keep me and my sister from time to time, and she would let us play with that thing. And my sister's five years older than me, and uh, she would um, have these games, whatever. So one time she was a reporter, a WSB reporter. I was Steve Barkowski, and she was interviewing me. We recorded this, and my sister still has it somewhere to the day. And so I, I didn't know much. I was probably five, and I was pretending to be this quarterback. And the next thing you know, I'm talking about how I love everyone. And I said, I love the world. I was just full of love, and really I was not. But sometimes people act that way. They love everybody until someone turns on them, of course. Well, here, when it comes to love, we see that it is to be discerning. Again, when I was a new Christian, this was years later. I was probably 18 or 19. I really didn't like to use the word hate because God is love, right? And yet, we just read earlier from Proverbs chapter 6, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. They bring him great disgust because they are in rebellion against him. And so we must align ourselves with God's love. Our love must be just like God's love. And so there are things we must hate. Well, what is that? We must hate, we must abhor, it says, what is evil? That which is in opposition to God. Sin and rebellion against him. And so we must love what God loves. We must hate what he hates. Now, does that mean we are to become a hateful, violent, cantankerous, joyless, crusty people? Of course not, because the fruit of the Spirit is also joy. And Paul is going to address this a little later in the chapter in verse 17. He says, repay no one evil for evil, and have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Remember, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, good teacher, Matthew 22? And he summarizes, and he says, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself, for all the law and the prophet hang on these two. That is what the Word of God is about, teaching us that we are to love God and our neighbors, and how to love God and to love our neighbors. Of course, we don't, so that's why He sent the Lord Jesus to overcome that for us, to pay for our sins, and so that we might receive His Spirit and learn how to do those things and to empower us to do them. And so that's why we have this here at this point in the Bible. And so we are to be a joyful people, and as our love for God grows, so should our disgust of that which is evil, that which is offensive to God. And again, I just give you a warning, because we are not to be self-righteous in this hatred of evil. How do I know this? Well, we, we hate evil because when we commit evil, and when we see others commit evil, 
It's an attack upon God himself and his rule over us and doing what is right. In fact, we've already seen this with the Apostle Paul, right? In Romans 7, he says, that which I hate to do, that's what I do. And the thing I want to do, I don't do it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He hates sin, and that's what he does. He struggles with it. He confesses it there. And so some have pointed out here when he talks about evil, evil here is in contrast to that which is good, that to which we are to cling. These are things we are to avoid in the Christian life. You know, in Psalm 36, it talks about this very thing. It characterizes the wicked. It says this, Psalm 36, 4, he devises the wicked. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. How do you know if a person is a wicked person? He does not abhor evil. Psalm 97, 10, it says, you who love the Lord hate evil. So there are all these commands in Scripture. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 8, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, 22, Paul says it uh, similarly there. He says, abstain from every form of evil. You ladies went through a book a few years ago by um, Chris Lungard, and uh, that book is called The Enemy Within. It's about sanctification, fighting the flesh, fighting that enemy. And in that book, he talks about a lethal faith. And so he's drawing from the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 that we are to put sin to death, that if our right hand causes us to sin, we cut it off, we throw it far from us, that we are to deal radically with sin. We are to hate our sin as we see here. And let me just recommend that book to you. It's very helpful. Um, one of the ways you can do that, he lists about six in that book, but one of the ways is to meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ, he says, to see the rottenness of your sin and the fullness of Christ's love. That's one way you can obtain this abhorrence of evil, is to look at the cross of Christ and to see what it took for God to deal with yours and mine, our sin. Thomas Chalmers wrote a sermon, and the title of the sermon is a sermon in itself. He wrote a sermon entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. When you obtain an affection for the Lord Jesus Christ, it crowds out evil from your life. And so then he says to, to cling to that which is good, clinging. Uh, the word here is to glue. It acts like glue, whatever it is that clings. And so we are to bond ourselves to that which is good. Remember, God defines for us good and evil. And he's done that in his word, in his moral law. And so that's where we find out what is good and evil. What is pleasing to God is that which is good, his commandments. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 15, he says, See that no one renders evil, evil for evil, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. That's what he's talking about. A little later, he says in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled what? 
the law, the law of God, the moral law of our God. Well, the third thing we see here is that our love must be affectionate. At least that's the way the New King James that I use puts it. Verse 10, it says there, be kindly affectionate to one another. Be affectionate, kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. So he says here to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. There's that word, Philadelphia, and that's the brotherly love. Yes, the city is named after this, the city of brotherly love. I don't know if it was because of the Quakers or whoever settled there first um, from Europe, but uh, it is that city of brotherly love, and that's the word here. And in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 9, it says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And so if you're a Christian and you've been born again and you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is that truth that you know that you desire to love other Christians. In fact, in 1 John 3, that is a test to see if we've been born again. We know that we passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Now, does that mean we need no imperatives, no commands in Scripture to love one another? No, because we still sin. Right here, we are commanded to love, to have this kindly affection of one another. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, Let uh, brotherly love continue. And so he says, be kindly affectionate to one another. That might make some of you squirm a little bit, especially if if you like your space, um, well, I can put you at ease. He doesn't mean that you have to be a hugger. We have a lot of huggers. And I know in our day and time that may be frowned upon, whatever. But uh, the point is, we could do a holy kiss instead because that's, right, that's commanded in Scripture. Greet one another with a holy kiss if we can go that route. And, and maybe that's part of it. Maybe. I don't, we, if you want to write a paper on that and give it to me, go ahead. Um, but the word here, this is what I'm trying to get at. Uh, the word here, kindly affectionate, is the idea of being devoted. The New American Standard, I think, puts it that way. Be devoted to one another. We talk about being devoted to God, but have you thought about the fact that you, as a Christian, are to be devoted to other Christians, to the church of Jesus Christ? So you can't just live out on your own and not go to church. No, in fact, if you are a Christian, we've already seen you love The brethren, you want to be around other Christians. Yeah, they're hypocrites. Yeah, I'm a hypocrite. We all are to one degree or another. And I told someone the other day, if you find the perfect church, don't go to it because you will mess it up. Right? We're all sinners. We acknowledge that. It's not an excuse, by the way. But the point is we're to be devoted to one another, loyal, faithful, true. You see, we're a family. We're the family of God. We've been, as Paul has already said in Romans 8, we've been adopted by the spirit of adoption, by God the Father. Jesus is our elder brother. We are brethren, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. They say that blood runs thicker than water. But the blood of Christ runs thicker than that. 
Think about it as Christians. We have the same God, the same Heavenly Father, the same Savior, the same indwelling Spirit, the same destination, and we will all spend eternity together in the same place, enjoying the same worship of the living God. Christians have the bond of peace. Christians have the bond of love. And Christians have the same bond of the Spirit, as the Scriptures tell us. So as we think about that, uh, be kindly affectionate to one another. Be devoted to one another. I want to ask you, dear Christian, is there another Christian with whom you have broken fellowship this morning? Jesus makes it clear. The Bible makes it clear. We are saints of the living God, brothers and sisters. And if you've sinned against a brother or sister, Matthew 5, Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar. If you know you, someone has something against you, go. and Make it right. Matthew 18, if someone has offended you, and you know it's broken fellowship, you are to go and show him or her his or her fault. And of course, there must be repentance, confession of sin, and Ephesians 4.32 must come into play here. It says, be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so you don't wait till they earn your forgiveness. No, because we didn't earn God's forgiveness. No, he was gracious, waiting and willing and ready to forgive us upon our confession and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, Ephesians 4 also says. And so if you have something against your brother or sister, if they have something against you, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to make it right. This is part of Christian love. As we looked at uh, repentance a few weeks ago, we saw that that is a gift from God. We embrace repentance and exercise it. There's a fourth thing here about Christian love. It is to be honoring. He says... In verse 10, in honor, giving preference to one another. The idea is with respect to honor, giving preference to one another. That's in the original there. So honor is honor. It means to respect, to value. You know, do you respect other people in general? And especially do you respect and value other brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean to respect? To respect means to esteem, means to value, to give consideration. We are to respect others in general because they are just like us, ourselves. They too are image bearers of God. Even though that image is marred because of sin and the fall, we respect them. And with other Christians, we especially respect them and honor them because not only are they image bearers of God, but that image is being restored in them, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. And they are the ones who have been redeemed like us by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus spilled His blood for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're to show honor towards them. Someone said that respect, which is the same as honor here, that respect means you care enough to think about how you impact others. Children, we talk about respect in the Christian faith. We talk about honoring those to whom honor is due, those in authority over us, parents, 
rulers, even civil rulers, yes. We give them honor. And to do so, to respect and honor means you care enough to think about how you impact others. To respect means you care enough to consider how your words and actions impact others. And so if you're in line for food and you're not the last one and you go up and, and, and there's the main dish and half of it's gone, you don't take the other half and put it on your plate. You think about the people behind you. I'm just going to get a little bit. I, after all, I can probably eat a bowl of cereal at home if I want to, if I'm still hungry. Or if you make a mess and you leave trash on the floor, do you leave it there? How will that impact others? You see? Or with your words, how you say what you want to say. The Bible says speak the truth, but speak it in love. And don't gossip. Don't slander. Or if you're in traffic and uh, you have to get off and you need to get off the interstate and you have to get over five lanes to get off, you made a poor decision to begin with or you forgot to make a decision, do you swerve in front of all those cars risking your life and theirs or do you just go to the next exit? You see, we have to make these decisions. And in order to overcome this, we have to overcome our own personal pride. By the way, when it talks about giving preference there, the idea is to lead, to take the lead in showing deference to other Christians, to others in general even. To show deference means to submit to others, to yield your opinion. And I saw this, I had Presbytery last week, and uh, we had an issue, we were debating on the floor, and uh, one, one uh, I'll just say elder, one presbyter, he voted no for this, this thing to pass, and uh, we passed it. And then we made another, we had another vote concerning this. Would this go to another place? And uh, even though he voted no, for that he voted yes. And so we, we passed an overture. And so we also passed that the overture, or we voted as to whether or not that overture would go to the General Assembly. And so in his mind, he thought, I'm going to submit to my brethren. Even though I didn't want to pass this overture, it's passed. And so now we're voting to make it go to General Assembly. So I will vote since we passed it as a presbytery to do the right thing and send it to General Assembly. And I thought that was an example of showing deference and honor and doing what he is vowed to do as an elder in our presbytery to submit to the brethren. By the way, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Philippians 2 and verse 3 where it says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And Jesus said, if we're going to be great in the kingdom, we don't need to be like the Gentiles. We, we don't want to lord over others. In Matthew 20 and verse 26, he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. In other words, in order to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must go low. You must be a servant and show honor to others. There's a fifth thing here. True Christian love is fervent. That's there in verse 11. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Not lagging in diligence. Diligence means to do something quickly, to do one's best in doing it. 
not lagging and doing our best, not being lazy or idle is the word here. And remember in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 and verse 26, Jesus talks about the unfaithful servant there. And he says, you lazy, you wicked and lazy servant. May, not that, may that not be true of us. The apostle Paul in Acts 20 worked with his hands. He was diligent to provide for the needs of others. And as he shows us here, he practiced what he preached. And we're to be fervent in spirit, literally boiling over, showing great enthusiasm, doing the work of the Lord, serving the Lord. Some have talked about the glow of the Spirit. So the question is, fervent spirit, is it fervent in the inner man, in our desire in doing this? Or does it mean to be fervent in the Holy Spirit and to be so connected with the Holy Spirit? You have this bubbling over, this glow, as it were, of the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean anything mystical by this, but I would say yes. That as we are filled, Ephesians 5.18, with the Holy Spirit, that these things come out of our lives. You know, Ephesians 5.15 or 5, I don't know why I keep saying it, 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And it talks about what the manifestations are there. And so as we do that, we have fervor in our Christian service. There are some who want to be diligent, who want to be methodological in their service. They're very detail-oriented and all of this, but maybe, just maybe, uh, their heart's not in it. And then there are some who don't have a plan, and they run all over the place like a, uh, a pinball, and uh, yet they're, they're zealous in doing it. And it's, it's both. We are to have a zeal, and we are to have discipline, and we are to be fervent in spirit. And the key there, if you look at it, in verse 11, it says, serving the Lord. You see, we belong to the Lord, right? 1 Corinthians 6, 20. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are the Lord's. And the key is what he says here, serving the Lord. You know, elsewhere in Colossians 3, because Paul was not an insurrectionist, he addressed the slaves in the church at Colossae. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 26, he didn't tell them to rebel, to have a revolt. No, this is what he said. He said, slaves, bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that you or that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And he goes on, you serve Christ. And so whether you're serving in the home or at the workplace, wherever it is that you serve others, if you serve in the name of Christ and do what you do unto the Lord, that will transform what it is you do to the glory of God. I can recall sweeping in a warehouse, cleaning toilets, and thinking, okay, Lord, you're my boss. Yeah, I work for this guy, but but you're ultimately my boss. And so however I clean this toilet and sweep that floor is a reflection of how I think about you. I want to please you. So I want to sweep in a way that gets all the trash up and so forth. 
And so that will transform. And so when it comes to Christian service, when it comes to doing what he's talking about, serving the church, even our gifts, he talks about that before. If we do it unto the Lord, that puts things in the right perspective, right? Remember Peter in the storm? He looks at Christ. He's walking towards Christ on the water. And then he takes his eyes off Christ and he begins to sink. Well, that's the Christian life right there. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. He is our motive. He is our strength. He is our supply. And we do whatever we do unto Him. And then the sixth thing here is that we're to be patient. Christian love is patient. Verse 12. He says, rejoicing in hope, the patient in tribulation, continuing, continuing steadfastly in prayer. And so we rejoice in hope. Hope is a desire and expectation of something to happen. And so as Christians, we have hope. The Christian's hope is based on the Word of God. It's based on the promises of God in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ based on what he has done and our response to it in repentance and faith, God will bless us, perhaps now in some ways, but ultimately forever and eternity with eternal fellowship and restored fellowship with God. So that's our hope. Christ himself, Titus 2.13, reminds us, is our hope. When he appears, 1 John 3.2, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And like Abraham of old, the Christian is one who looks for a city whose builder and maker is God. This world is not it. This trans- when this world is transformed, 2 Peter 3, the new heavens and new earth, it will be our home. But right now it's not our home. We are pilgrims passing through. And that is our hope, the things to come. And we are to rejoice in those things. He says, uh, patient in tribulation and affliction, suffering of all sorts. Could be sickness, it could be poverty, could be persecution. You know, that thought has become more real in our day and time. I, I hope you're not ignorant of the news. I mean, you don't want to get bogged down in it. I've, I've been guilty of that. And you, all, you lose hope because you take your eyes off Christ and put them on the current events. But we have to know what's going on. At least you, you men should and protect your families, protect your wives and children. But, I mean, persecution happens in our world. And it has throughout the church in various degrees. Well, being patient here means to endure it, to stand firm, to continue in the faith. And we can do this based on what Paul has already told us in Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. God takes the worst of experiences and uses them to mold us and to shape us and fashion us into the very image of His Son to make us more like Jesus. That's glorious. No, we don't enjoy the trial. When James says, consider it all joy, he's not talking about the trial itself. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But God uses the trial to mold and strengthen and fashion your faith in him. And he says here to continue steadfastly in prayer. This is where the power is. 
This is the source for being able to stand firm in trial and affliction. At least it's part of it in prayer, prayer and the word and the means of grace that God has given to us. He says, continuing, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Not just continuing, but steadfastly continuing in prayer. This, again, is our power. When, when Christ himself was risen just before he would ascend on high and sit at the right hand of God the Father, he gave this, this commission, this mission to his church. We call it the co-mission because he says he will perform it with us. And uh, it's to make disciples of the nations. That's our main goal, our charge as the church of Jesus Christ. Going, baptizing, teaching those that come in to obey the commandments of Christ. And, and he says this at the end, Lo, highlight this, don't forget it, I am with you always. We're just saying Isaiah 43 even though you go through the waters, they will not overtake you. Even though you go through the fire, you will not be consumed. The trials of life, whatever it is that Christ has called us to do, He has promised His presence, and His presence is our power. And how do we sense Christ's presence in our life? It is through prayer. It is through His Word. It is through the means of grace that He's given to us, beloved. In Acts 2.42, this was true of the early church. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. In Acts 6.4, elders, remember this, the apostles, the elders, uh, listen to the order here. In Acts 6.4, they said, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. Colossians 4.2, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant, in it with all thanksgiving. Are you here this morning, Christian, despondent, discouraged? Have you wavered? Are you nervous? Have you continued steadfastly in prayer? What is it that you can give up to spend more time in God's word and in prayer? I have to ask myself that question every week. Every week it's a fight. Every week it's a struggle. You know, I get the, the screen time report on my phone. I'm looking at a computer all day and doing my work. Yeah, but then I have all these other things open and they pop up and, and it's just like, okay, something has to give. Maybe I've got to put something down. There are things I must do, things I have to do today. In that list, I need to put reading the Word of God, not for sermon prep, not for teaching, not for bulletins, but prayer and the Word of God for my own soul. And so it is with you. That's what we see here. In our day and time, we are distracted by many things, many things. And then last, Christian love must be generous. He says, distributing to the needs of the saints given given to hospitality. Distributing, that is, sharing in, participating in the needs of the saints. Does your brother or sister in here have a need this morning? If so, how can you, how can I participate in that and help them with it? That's what we're called to do here. Galatians, I think chapter 6 
says to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Speaking about love for neighbor, it was John Calvin who says, if we're going to obey the command of Christ to love our neighbor as ourselves, we must take off our shoes and put on their shoes and walk in their shoes and see what their life is like. Some neighbors are hard to love. I'll confess that. But we're to love them. And some Christians are hard to love. Some might be awkward. Some might be cantankerous. Some might be aloof. Maybe you have to go chase them down to love them. And maybe that's you. Well, just remember, you are to love other Christians as well. In fact, in in, uh, Matthew's gospel, Jesus talks about the day of judgment and the validity of of being acknowledged as his servants at the day of judgment. And the way, one way we will be acknowledged is our service to other Christians and, and to others in general, I think, as well. But in Matthew 25, there's that, that parable, and he talks about the righteous. And he says, you took me in. You gave me drink. You came and visited me and all these things. And then the righteous at that day, verse 37, they will answer him and say, Lord, when? When did we see? Because remember, he's ascended on high. He's at the right hand of the Father. And he's going to be there until he comes back. And so that's a great question. When did we see you? Hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked or clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Don't you see? Our service to others is service to Christ. We serve in the name of Christ by serving others. And so we are called to selflessness, to be generous. It was Christians who started the orphanages and in many places the hospitals being hospitable. And this was necessary in the days of the New Testament when ends were far and few between, when it was dangerous to travel and when there was persecution. Christians opened up their hearts and they opened up their homes to other Christians. And so this morning as we think about this, this manifestation of divine Christian love. I just point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the epitome of love. If you want to know what this looks like, look at the Lord Jesus, who was sincere in his love, who was discerning in his love, who was affectionate. He showed honor, fervor. He was patient and was generous. And may His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, work in us the love that is His. Amen. Let's pray.